Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If this looks familiar to what we talked about last week, it's because we're doing a part two of last week's lesson today. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle for our lesson today compared to what we did last week. But we're going to start by reading these verses here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Just remind ourselves of what we started out with last week and what the kind of the basis is for what we're talking about here today. 1 Peter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So we talked about last week how these verses describe how the life of a Christian is going to be different from the world. That we are going to live in such a way that we are going to stand out. People are going to notice us because, as we saw in verse 1, we arm ourselves with the same purpose that Christ had. That we are living, as verse 2 says, not to fulfill the lusts of men, but to fulfill the will of God. That is what our aim is. That's what our purpose is. That's what we are here to do. So we have decided that as Christians, we are going to live a certain way, which means we've turned from our old lives of sin, which is what he talked about in verse 3, that the time past where we have done these other things, well, that was in our past. We can't change what we've done. But that was what we had done. We've given those things up. But then people around us notice that, well, you don't do those things that you used to do. And we talked about some of those things last week and how people in the world may be surprised that about the words that we use or don't use. Or as he mentioned in these verses here about the use of alcohol and we talked about a couple of other things but for our lesson here this morning I want to look at this from a little bit of a different angle because just as this is true about us as individuals it is also true for churches as well that when you think about the religious landscape and all of the many churches and denominations that are out there and when people find out that we are a member of this church, of one that claims to be of Christ. And they find out, well, you don't do this or you don't do that, and they're surprised by the things that that we do or don't do. And sometimes they have they wonder about that or they have questions about that or they think there's something wrong with what we are doing or not doing. So we're going to talk about a few of those things here this morning that just as this applies to us as individuals, this is just as true for us as churches. That there are some things that when they hear about what we do or maybe they visit an assembly and they see how things are done here and they notice that things are a little bit different than what they're used to if they attend a lot of the denominations around here. Well, why is it that you do this or that you don't do this? They think it's strange that we do the things that we do. We're going to talk about a few of those here this morning. The first of these, which may be one of the most obvious when someone comes and visits us who is familiar with other churches, is that we don't use instrumental music in our worship. 
most churches that you will see around in the area, they have some form of instrumental music. It used to be more common where you would have an organ player or maybe a piano player and then turned now where you have a lot of times you have a band or even someone up there just playing the guitar and you have some type of music, instrumental music, that is being used in the worship of God. Well, we don't have this. Why is it that we don't have instrumental music? People think that's strange that we that we don't do that. It's just a matter of personal choice or is there because we don't have anyone who can play any instruments or is there some other reason why we don't have instrumental music? Well, over in John chapter 4 and verse 24, we need to be reminded of this when ever we think about anything regarding our worship and the things that we do as we come together here. Jesus in John chapter 4, when he was speaking with the Samaritan woman, he told her in verse 24, after the discussion turned to a question about worship, he said in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's talking about worshiping with a proper attitude and worshiping according to what God has revealed in His Word. That's the truth part of it. And there are a lot of people who may be very sincere, and I'm sure they are very sincere. And so we might say that, well, they're going along the same or the right direction in the first part of that, but they miss the second part about that worshiping in truth. Notice over in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, when it talks about the, the type of music that we do as we praise God, there's a certain type of music that is mentioned. In Ephesians 5.19 it says that we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So the worship that we offer as we praise God with song, it says we are singing these songs. Parallel passage over in Colossians 3 and verse 17 says this, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we know that God wants us to sing. We can see that as we look at these passages, what will please God? Well, us singing these songs to Him, singing from the heart, not only to praise Him, but also to teach and admonish one another, that that is a benefit of singing as well. It's not just for God, it's also for all of us, that we all benefit from these songs and the teaching that is contained in them. But then that raises the question, because these other churches that are all around us that have instrumental music, they'll say, well, we're singing too, or they may have people up on stage singing, but and then maybe some of the people in the in the crowd are singing as well, but, but they may say, well, we're singing also. Does it have to be singing and only singing? Well, notice the next verse. We read Colossians 3.16 just then. Notice the next verse. It says in verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So, Everything we do has to be done by the authority of Christ. Well, we, some might say, well, we, yeah, we acknowledge that. We're, so we're singing, we're doing those things. But it never says not to use these instruments. It never says not to use musical instruments in worship. So we're singing, but then we just have the instruments added on to that. Which is a, 
important question to to consider because you know it is you know logical or reasonable why someone would wonder like, well we are singing so why can't we do some other things with that too Hebrews chapter 7 is helpful on this point because not just for instrumental music but for a lot of things people may wonder you know well I know the Bible says this but does that mean that we can't also do this? We observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week because it says to observe it on the first day of the week. But does that mean that we can't observe it on Saturday or Thursday or whatever other day of the week? Why is it only on Sunday? Notice this principle that's shown us here in Hebrews chapter 7. This is important. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. This shows us a basic principle of interpretation when we're trying to understand how do we know what the Bible is, is teaching us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. It says when the priesthood is changed, because it's talking about Jesus having to, Jesus being a priest, but the priests under the old law were from the Levitical tribe. And Jesus was not from that tribe. So it says in verse 12, when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. So Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. All the priests under the law of Moses descended from the tribe of Levi. So, well, if Jesus is going to be priest, well, couldn't he just be priest? And, and Well, normally they come from Levi, but it doesn't say that they can't come from Judah. It doesn't say anything about that. Verse 14 it says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. The law of Moses did not have to say, The priests come from the tribe of Levi, and do not have priests from the tribe of Judah, do not have priests from the tribe of Benjamin, do not have priests from the tribe of Dan, or any of the other ones. He did not have to say that. When he specified the priests come from the tribe of Levi, that meant... He didn't have to say the others. All the other ones were necessarily excluded. And excluded, this is such an important rule and one that's easily dismissed by people. But notice how important this was that even for Jesus himself, the perfect, sinless Son of God, there wasn't an exception made for him. It's like, well, I know normally priests come from the tribe of Levi, but because of who you are, because you are the Son of God, because you are perfect and sinless and more qualified than anyone else to serve as priest, will make an exception. No, as long as the law was in effect, he could not be the priest. Because Moses spoke, Moses spoke nothing concerning priests coming from the tribe of Judah. So because it was not specified that priests come from here, and instead it was specified they come from the tribe of Levi, that meant that in order for Jesus to be priest, the law would have to change. In the same way with worship and the what we offer in worship to God, in the law that we are under today, the law of Christ, you have singing that is specified. If we want some other type of music, the law would have to change, just as it did in this case here. Why do we not use instrumental music? Because we're authorized to sing, and that's all of the authority that we have as far as offering worship. That is what we know is pleasing to God. That is what He's revealed to us. So that's why we use the instrument of our voice 
rather than man-made instruments that are so common in the world today. Another thing that people think is strange about our worship and about our assemblies is that we don't have women preach or lead in worship. Our society continues to try to blur the distinctions and the roles between men and women, acting as if there's no difference between the two or what one can do, another can do. And this is one of the ways that this is that this is seen as becoming more and more accepted, that you would have women who would be in positions of leadership in churches, women who would preach in churches. And I want to be clear up front that this is not a question of capability. There are many women who would be capable of doing this. As far as standing up and presenting a message, I'm sure there are women who are better at it than I am. This is not a matter of whether one is capable of doing this or not. It's a matter of respecting the roles that God has given for both men and women. We certainly see over in Titus chapter 2 that women can teach. We're not, you know, the Bible does not say that women are not to are not to teach in any type of capacity. Titus chapter 2 in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3, says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, and all the things that he mentions there, that the older women are expected to teach. There's, there is no prohibition against women teaching in the New Testament. However, there is a... There are instructions about teaching in an assembly like this that would prohibit women from taking on that role. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and talking about how they were to conduct themselves as they assembled together and how one person would get up and deliver a message. Now he's talking about those who would receive prophecies and things like that because it was still in the time of spiritual gifts. But it is the principle applies even today, even though we don't have these same spiritual gifts. We still have people getting up and speaking and delivering a message before the congregation. He says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34 that women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Now, someone may wonder, well, does that mean she can't sing? No, it doesn't mean she can't sing. This is talking about when she gets or when someone gets up and on their own is delivering a message to the congregation. That's something that is that is out of place for her, or it's not her role to do that. Then over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about that in this passage as well, where he talks about what the men are to do, where they are to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension in verse 8. And then he talks about the women in beginning in verse 9. Last week we talked about this passage as it related to the type of clothing that we wear, how we present ourselves, how we dress ourselves. But it also applies to what we're saying here in verses 11 and 12, where it says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So in the context of where teaching is being done and and we gather together and you have a group of men and women together, 
then you have the women who are, as 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 says, they are to remain silent. They are not to be the ones who get up and who are, who are speaking. They are not to teach, and he says, or exercise authority over a man. So whether it is a public role in teaching or some position of leadership in the church, elders are to be the husband of one wife, not elder could be a wife of one husband. No, it's the husband of one wife because he has to be a man to be in that position of leadership. And again, it's not a question of capability. It's one of the roles that God has given. And as I mentioned in when I made when we talked about 1 Corinthians 14.34, women keeping silent in the churches, that's about getting up and speaking. It's not about singing. Women can and should sing in the assembly as we read in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, we are all teaching one another, singing to one another. So she is she can do that, but when it talks about here in 1 Timothy 2, in verse 12, she is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's why we don't have a woman getting up and leading singing in the assembly, because that would be an act of exercising authority over others. She can sing just as all of us can sing together. But the one who is leading or directing the song service, that would not be part of her role as we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. But that's something that's going to make us stand out. Because so many churches, there's so much pressure from society now. And it has been for a long time, but it feels like it's just continuing to get worse. That There's a lot of pressure to have women in these visible positions in leadership and leading and preaching and doing all those things in churches that the more we stick to what the Bible teaches the more we're going to stand out and people are going to see are going to see that and notice the difference between what we're doing and what all the other churches are doing another point on this that as far as what we do as a church that is different from the world and people are surprised by this is that the church doesn't host social events. This is you know, this has come to be expected by people in the world today. I remember when, not long after I moved to Bowling Green and got a job at working at, the, at one of the sign shops in Bowling Green, and somehow this came up. I was talking to the boss there and mentioned that I was going to... Uh, Bible study on Wednesday night, going going to church services on, on a Wednesday night. And he asked the question then is like, oh, are they feeding you there? Just the assumption that well if you're you know if you're going to go to go to church services on Sunday other than Sunday, there must be a reason. They must be feeding you, they must be doing something. And uh, and that was just the what people thought was expected. And there are a lot of churches that that's what they do, is they're going to meet on some other day or have some event happen that, well, we have to provide something for them. We have to feed them. We have to do something like that. But we don't do that here. The church doesn't host those type of social events, whether it's food or entertainment or games or anything else. Now, I do want to, to make sure that we understand that these type of social interactions and social things are good when they are done by individuals and families. We see when the church was first established in Acts chapter 2 that as the church was growing and they were continuing on with one another, it says in Acts 2 and verse 46, 
day by day continue with one with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart obviously that's something that is good to do for Christians to be together and enjoy the company with one another and eat meals together that's something that's good but that's not what they were doing as a church that's not something that the church was was funding or was hosting as we see this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul was talking about the Lord's Supper and the problems that had arisen and the abuses of the Lord's Supper and had to write to correct them on that because what was happening in Corinth was that they were taking the Lord's Supper and turning it into just a common meal where it was a, it was a time to, to get together and just have one big meal where we, where we where enjoy this food together but layered on top of that then they were also those who had the means to do so, that were providing all of the food, that they would come together early and eat and enjoy that meal together before the others who may not be able to, to contribute something, before they could even get there. So some were hungry and some others were already, had already filled and already had already eaten. So Paul was having to write to address all that. So there were two problems there. One of, was the corruption of the Lord's Supper, and the two was the was the fact that they were that they were not treating one another as they should. So, the simple solution to this is to remember what the purpose is of the assembly, and what the what we are to do as individuals or families or households. He says in First Corinthians eleven twenty two, he says, "What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink?" Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. He says, you have houses that you can eat and drink in. He further goes on in in verse 34, or verse 33. He says, so then my brethren, when you come together to eat, and he's just, from verse 23 on, he's been talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, he says, you wait for one another. Don't just take one and, and just get there early and other people are expecting to be able to partake and then, and then they're not able to because it's all gone. He says, no, you wait for one another. But then in verse 34, he says, if anyone is hungry, so this is another type of meal. The Lord's Supper is not a meal to satisfy hunger. The Lord's Supper is a meal to remember the death of Jesus on the cross. That's why what we partake of is sufficient even though it's a tiny piece of bread and a little cup of juice, that's sufficient because the purpose is not to have a meal where we satisfy hunger. It's to remember Jesus, and that is able to allows us to do that. So if there's a meal that we need to satisfy hunger, the verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you do not come together for judgment. In the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So those types of meals... The meals where you're eating to to feed yourself and to strengthen yourself, that's not for the church. That's not the place of the church. That is the place in the home. Now, again, Acts 2.46, you can have other Christians together with you. You can get together. You can and take your meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That's all good. But for the church, that's not the work of the church. That's not the role of the church. So the church does not host these types of 
social events. But again, this is becoming more and more common. And even those who, you know, I know, I know those who used to be in more conservative churches of Christ who have gone off and now say, no, we can do these types of things. We can have these type of meals and host them in their church buildings and all of that. That's not what anywhere authorized in the scriptures. We want to do those things that the Lord has authorized us to do. So this is one of those things that, well, that seems different. You all don't do that. It's not because we don't appreciate the social interactions that we have with others. It's because we want to make sure that we are assembling for the reason that God has told us to assemble. And then those other things we can do at other times. The final point I want to talk about today, and again, this is another one of the big ones is that we don't help the needy in the community. Now, again, this is the church. The church does not do this. Our society has come to expect that churches, that's one of the main reasons why they're there, if not the main reason why they're there, is to help those who are in need. Now, for those who are religious, they may think that, no, no, we're here to honor God, but then right behind that is we're here to help the needy. And those who are not religious, they may not believe anything the Bible teaches, but assume that, well, the church is there, that's a charity, that, that they're there to help people who are in need. And so, whether they're religious or not religious, a lot of times people are shocked to hear or to find out that the church here doesn't do that. Well, why don't we do that? Is it because we're not concerned about other people or we don't care about other people? No, that's not the reason. So we look over in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. We know that helping those who are in need is absolutely something that is good to do. But it's something that we are to do as individuals. Each one of us, as we are able, as we have opportunity, as it talks about here, Galatians 6 and verse 10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, he talks about let us do this. He's talking about what we do as individuals. In verse 6 it says the one who is taught is to do this. The one who sows in verse 8. So he's talking about what each individual does. Well this is what we're doing. As each one of us has opportunity we are to do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. Over in James chapter 1 and verse 27 it says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That this is something that he described as pure and undefiled religion. When it talks about to visit them, he's talking about to help them, to provide for them, to make sure that their needs are met. And this is something that is done as individuals. That each one has a responsibility, again going back to Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, as we are able to do that, we have the responsibility to do that. It's what we do as individuals. Well, what about the church doing something like that? Because there are all sorts of needy people all around us that could use assistance, could use help. We could spend all of our time and, and all of the funds that are collected in, for the work of the church. It would be very easy to exhaust all of that very quickly simply by trying to help certain ones who are in need. And even then, you just put a dent in the needs that are there just in the community around here. 
that there you have all of these needs all around us. But passages that I want us to notice here, and we'll go through these a little bit quickly, but and they're on the screen if you wanted to to write them down if if we go through them too fast. But Acts chapter four, I want, I want to notice in each one of these passages that when the church offered assistance to those who were in need, the recipients were always Christians. It was never those who were in the community, it was never those who were non-Christians. The recipients were always Christians. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, When the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, not one of them claimed that any, anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. Who's the them? The congregation of those who believed. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So here you have the church in Jerusalem. And this was an extraordinary event here where you had people coming for the day of Pentecost, traveling from all different places. They heard the gospel for the first time and obeyed it and continued on as we read in Acts chapter 2 verse 46. They were continuing together, but they were there longer than they planned to be there. They were in need. So you have some of those who were able to do this, again, going back to what we do as we have opportunity to do this, and the ability to do this, you had those who had houses and lands, they would sell them and bring the money so it, they could give it to the apostles that would be distributed to those who were in need. Those recipients were not just the poor in Jerusalem, but it was the needy among the congregation of those who believed. Over in Acts chapter 11, in verse 29 and 30, when the church at Antioch hears that of the famine that's coming. It says in verse 29, in the, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each, one, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So again, you have Christians there in Antioch. We're going to send support, send relief to who of the ones who were in Judea? The brethren. The brethren in need who were in Judea. Not just anyone. Not just the poor of that region, poor of that area. But for the brethren who were in that area who were in need. Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 15. In verse 26, Paul talks about the contribution that he is carrying with him to those in need in Jerusalem. He says in verse 26 of Romans chapter 15, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, a passage that is often cited when we talk about the collection that we take up on the first day of the week, and it talks about one of the reasons why we take up a collection, why the church gathers its funds. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Then he says in verse 2, on the first day of the week you do this. But it was the contribution or the collection for the saints. Every example in the New Testament 
of the church providing help for those who are in need. The recipients were always Christians. And even then, I think this is an important point to remember because sometimes we we talk about the work of the church and we talk about the, there's three works of the church. There's evangelism and edification and benevolence. And that's true, that those are the, the works of the churches to do. Benevolence, though, is a little bit different than the other two. Evangelism is something that is always necessary because there are always people out there who need to hear the gospel, who have not heard it. There is always the need for preaching to be done. There is never going to come a time, as long as the earth stands, that evangelism is not necessary. Edification is one of those works that is an ongoing work of the church because all of us, edification is about building up those who are believers, those who are Christians. All of us need encouragement. All of us continue to need to be strengthened in the Lord. So that is an ongoing work. Benevolence, especially because it's directed to those who are needy Christians, is generally speaking not going to be an ongoing work. There is going, there, it is going to be done on an as-needed basis. So you have different places that talk about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. We read 1 Corinthians 16.1, where he talks about the collection. Well, here in 2 Corinthians 8, he's writing back to them about the collection, encouraging them to, to uh, carry out their promise that they made to take up this collection. But notice that this wasn't something that was going to be ongoing forever. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 14, it says, At this present time, your abundance, being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Right now, these other brethren are in need. And you are able to, because you have an abundance, the church there is able to do this, you can provide for their need, but it's not to be an ongoing thing. You provide for their need right now. And the expectation is at some point they're going to be back on their feet again. They're going to be able to be in a position to help others. And it could even be that they have to help the church in Corinth because at some point in the future, they may be the ones who are in need. Now, this is not something that is just ongoing. There's, there's a need that arises. Acts 11, there was a famine that came up that there was a need and it was a for a short period of time. And they needed to provide assistance to those needy saints there in Judea. Well, here's the same type of thing. You're sending this support, but it's not an ongoing support. It is something that is, you're meeting the need right now, and then that those brethren there can then use that to get back on their feet, and then they may be able to help others in the future. Another passage that's good to remember on this is over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about the care of widows by the church. And again, those who are needy Christians, they can be helped. But this passage shows us that even then, most of the time that should be a temporary assistance, not an ongoing help. Because it, it says here in 1 Timothy 5, there are a, is a certain group of Christians who are to receive ongoing, continual help from the church. And it's a small group of, of people here. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16 it says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them. And the church must not be burdened, 
so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. And that passage talks about these widows indeed, those who had no one to help them. But they were faithful Christians, they had done all of these things, and now they were, they were with no one to help them. The church is to take them on, and the church is to provide help for them. But if there are others who can care for them, Paul is saying here, don't pass that responsibility off onto the church. The church has other obligations. It needs to help those who are widows indeed, but it also needs to be doing the work of evangelism and edification. That we need to be doing what we can. Family needs to be doing what they can to care for their own. Rather than saying, well, that's what the church is there for. No, that's not what the church is there for. The church is there to be the pillar and support of the truth. The church is there to build up the body of Christ. And there may be times and exceptions where there are needs that need to be met, or here in 1 Timothy 5 where someone needs ongoing help, but those are exceptions. They're authorized exceptions, but they are exceptions to the regular ongoing work of the church. So as far as what we do as individuals, absolutely, we can help needy Christians and needy non-Christians as we have opportunity to do that. But as a church, we are more limited in what we do because we are trying to do what the Lord wants us to do. So as we think about that passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, people are surprised at what we do and what we do not do. We have been called as individuals to be like Christ. And as <coughs> congregations, we are to be of Christ. Romans 16, 16 says, The churches of Christ greet you. We need to be, that's not just a name that we put on the sign out front. That needs to be who we are as a congregation, that we are of Christ, that we belong to Him. That means that we follow His instructions and do what we know is pleasing to Him. And if we do that, then we as individuals, as a congregation here, we're going to look very different from the world around us. But in everything that we do, we need to make sure that we are looking to the Word of God rather than to the world around us to see what we need to be doing. So in all things that we do, we need to try to please Him because He is the one that we are serving. So we close the lesson and extend the invitation this morning. We want to invite anyone who is not yet a Christian to become one. That's what the invitation is all about. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and are willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith, you can be baptized to have your sins washed away. And if you've done that, and become a Christian, but need to make some corrections in your life, some changes, then make those changes. Repent of whatever sin you may have and pray to God and ask Him for forgiveness. And if we could help you in any way with that, we'd be more than happy to do so. But we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.